Hebrews chapter 8. Now, we are going to finish the book of Hebrews this semester, uh, but it means that we're having to skip some stuff. But I will tell you, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, it's somewhat difficult to go through them week by week anyway because the themes kind of interweave, and the basic themes that we're looking at in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 have to do with Christ's superiority to the Old uh, Testament um, priesthood and the temple and the covenant. And those are all ideas that if you've not been around Christian people, you may not have heard. They're also ideas that depending on which Christians you've been around, you may have peculiar ideas about them. Um, because there are different views among Christians about the relationship of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, In a shorthand way, I think, to try to understand the difference is uh, the gospel is in the Old Testament. Grace is in the Old Testament. If you're one of those people that's heard this idea that in the Old Testament you have this sort of angry God, but then eventually we evolve into this nice Father God in the New Testament, that's really not at all true. And you don't have to read the Bible very carefully at all to see that. For instance, the book of Hebrews here in the New Testament says, our God is a consuming fire. And it's in the Old Testament where it says that God will shelter us under his wings like a mother hen, right? So that that simplistic idea, Old Testament, angry God, New Testament, loving God, is, is proven wrong just almost any chapter that you turn. turn. And yet, there are some people who believe um, sort of a different way of relating the Old Testament and New Testament. Here's the, here's the little shorthand thing I would give you to help you. In the old, the new is concealed. And in the new, the old is revealed. In other words, everything that the New Testament talks about in in a lot of ways is already anticipated in the Old Testament. In some way, it's like the flower is there, but it's still in the bud in the Old Testament, but it comes to full flowering in the New Testament. And so one of the things that you get from the Old Testament is that God created human beings to be in a relationship with him. Now, there are a lot of Uh, religions, particularly in the ancient world, that didn't so much think about God wanting a relationship. God just sort of wanted people to do what the gods wanted so that they could sort of, people could get God, the gods off their back. Um, But the the Old Testament, the Judeo-Christian understanding is that God created human beings to be in a relationship with him, not just to be his little servants and run around and do his work, but to be in a relationship, right? And yet, in the Old Testament, you find that that, um, it gets messed up, and then, you know, God has to deal with that. And the New Testament gives the full flowering of that solution, what God is going to do. But it's already there in the Old Testament, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight uh, from Hebrews 8, is this relationship of the Old Covenant, we're going to talk about what a covenant is, why that matters, and this New Covenant, what's new about the New Covenant. Um, Now, granted, there are a lot of terminology, a lot of terminology tonight, I'm going to have to explain, but that's okay. Um, But let me just give you, before we read this passage, for those of you who haven't been with us going through our study of Hebrews, you need to know this little bit. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who are from a Jewish background— So they were ethnically Jewish, um, but they had become Christians, and they were living most likely in Rome, a fairly small little church there in Rome. They've already suffered some persecution. 
we know that the Christians were expelled from Rome in A.D. 49, and then they were allowed to come back. For a while, Christians were tolerated by the Roman Empire because they were seen as a kind of Jew. They were seen as a kind of Judaism. Uh, and Judaism was an uh, allowable religion. You could be Jewish and not have to offer sacrifices to the emperor in Roman law. And yet, after a while, the Romans began to realize that Christians and Jews were not the same thing. And at that point, the Christians began to be persecuted more intensely. The book of Hebrews is written to these Jewish Christians at a period right before the persecution of Nero. Nero was nuts. And he did really terrible things to Christians, like dip them in tar, set them up on stakes, and light them on fire as human torches for his garden parties. He also blamed the burning of Rome on the Christians, and there was incredible persecution against them in that point. So this book is written to Christians and, uh, who are Jewish, and the, the temptation they're dealing with is, if we go back to Judaism, we can avoid the persecution. And so the whole book of Hebrews is, in some ways, a sermon written to these people to say, you can't go back. You can't go back. And we're going to talk about why that is. But that's the situation of the book of Hebrews. And now we get to chapter 8. And I know I skipped chapter 7, but I felt it was okay to do that because of the way chapter 8 begins. He basically begins by summarizing and saying, here's what I'm trying to tell you. So I figured we could skip right to that. Uh, since we just don't have enough weeks to do every chapter. So follow me here, chapter 8 of Hebrews, we'll start at verse 1. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest. He's talking about the kind of high priest we need. And now he says, we do have this high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one, he's talking about Jesus, also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. In other words, there were already priests in the order of the Levites. Verse 5, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises." For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another, but God found fault with the people and said, and then he quotes Jeremiah at length here in Hebrews 8, the time is coming, this is all from Jeremiah, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Because they will all know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, as Jeremiah does, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now, this is a a, a difficult passage. There's lots of terminology and concepts here that may not be familiar to you. So uh, I'd like to pray. Let's pray before we dig into this. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We pray now that you'd help us. We don't want this prayer to just be perfunctory. But Lord, even as we pray, help us to realize again how much we need your spirit, not only to receive your word, but even to understand it. So send your spirit to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the heart of what we're going to talk about tonight is this new covenant. And what is the new covenant all about? But I guess before we talk about the new covenant, I need to say something about what a covenant is. Now, we sometimes use that, that word in our language, but let me tell you what it means in the Bible. A covenant is, is best described as a living love bond. Now, we do have sort of covenant relationships. The best one that you know would be the marriage covenant, where vows are made, and yet it's not just a legal contract. Covenants are different than contracts, because in contracts, both parties negotiate and sort of come to a compromise and a mutual um, sort of decided upon deal, and then they sign their name to it to say, we've both come to negotiate and we both come to this agreement. The difference with a covenant is a covenant is unilaterally imposed. There is one who is sovereign who says this is the terms of our relationship. And the Bible speaks about that. There actually were parallel agreements among um, sort of uh, kings that had vassal states or other you know, countries that were servants to them, and they would do these things. They're called suzerain treaties. And the, the, the suzerain treaties are very similar to what the Bible means by covenant, where there is one who is sovereign, God, and God says, this is how a relationship with me will look. But it's not just sort of this domineering kind of heartless God saying, you must be my little peons and do just what I say. No, it's a living love bond where God says, I will be your God. Your God. Do you understand the audacity of that kind of language? What the Judeo-Christian religion proclaims is that God wants to be our God. He wants to give himself to a people. He doesn't want to stay distant and sovereign and sort of looking down upon people and squishing them like a little bug whenever he feels like it. That's not the biblical picture of God at all. What's truly astonishing is God is the sovereign one. High, holy, lifted up, transcended over all things, the maker of heaven and earth, creator of all that is, right? And yet, he says to his people, I will be your God, your God, and you will be my people. While it is true that often the Bible talks about God's people as his inheritance, God even says about himself that I will be your inheritance, And that's why the Bible says that marriage, God created marriage to teach us about his love. The idea that one person would give themselves to another person and and so become interconnected that what hurts one hurts the other is what God says my love is like. It's not that God looked down on the world and said, look at these humans with this quaint little custom of getting married. I could use that. No, it's just the opposite. 
God created marriage to teach us something about his love. This is the idea of a covenant. And God created mankind, Adam and Eve, in the garden to fellowship with them, to relate to them, to love them, and to be loved. And in, even though that word covenant is not used in Genesis at the creation story, the first place where it is used in the, in the story of Noah, where the word covenant first shows up in the Bible, it uses a form of the Hebrew there that is, refers to something that is being reintroduced. So even though the word isn't there in Genesis at the creation, all the elements are there. And when the word does first appear in Noah, it's a form of the Hebrew that says, um, I will reaffirm my covenant. So the uh, supposition is that the covenant already exists. But you may know the story. God creates Adam and Eve. He pledges himself to them, but they turn away from him and they break his heart. And the heart of what the Bible says is wrong with humanity is not that people broke the rules, but there's been a relational rupture. And you know the pain of a broken relationship. Some of you know it firsthand from seeing your parents or grandparents or friends or best friends, and maybe you probably know it even in your own life. Relationships that have been ruptured. That's what the Bible says is ultimately wrong with our world and with us and with our relationship to creation and everything, okay? But here's the good news of the Bible, is that God is a tenacious God who is still committed to being our God and us being his people. And even though mankind has turned against him and broken his heart, he remains committed to them. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he makes this astonishing promise that he will send the seed of the woman Someone who will come from the lineage of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that is the first promise of the gospel, the good news, that God says, I am so committed to this that I am going to send my own son to take everything that stands between me and my people and and do away with it so that this relational thing that I wanted to be will be realized. This is what the Bible talks about with the covenant. And what you find through the Old Testament is God reaffirms this language again and again. Uh, At key moments, it's really articulated, but it's all through the Bible. This promise, I will be your God, you will be my people, and nothing will be able to stand against that, right? So, but here's the thing. In the Old Testament itself, and this is what the book of Hebrews is drawing on here at this point. In the book of Hebrews, or in the Old Testament, Built into all those promises, I will be your God, you will be my people, is this message. That this old covenant, this way of relating to God through the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices and whatnot, that was never designed as the ultimate solution. There is a huge problem. The sin problem, the relational rupture, has to be dealt with. And God promises through the Old Testament that he's going to deal with it. And he gives God's people a picture of their sin being covered over so that they can relate to God. So you have this whole imagery of the tabernacle, which is sort of a temporary temple that they set up and then they tear down when they move, when they're wandering around. But eventually a permanent temple is built in Jerusalem. And the imagery is this. God will meet with his people. He will be with his people. But in order for them to relate together, their sin has to be covered. And so the animal sacrifices are showing that sin needs to be dealt with. But the book of Hebrews makes the point, which should have been obvious to the Jews, but often wasn't, that the old covenant, the animal sacrifices, was never intended to be the ultimate solution. 
It was pointing to the ultimate solution. It was pointing to the fact that God was committed to a solution, that he was going to continue to relate to his people, but it also pointed to the fact that for God to truly create a situation that was all it was meant to be for us to relate to him, the sin had to be dealt with, okay? And so even in the Old Testament, there is this promise of a new covenant, which is to say the old covenant relating to God by having animal sacrifices cover your sin was never a permanent solution. It was pointing to the fact that God was going to deal with the sin problem, but it itself wasn't the solution. And you don't need the New Testament for that. So if you're, like, if, you, you know, if you're a Jew in the Old Testament period, you already knew, based upon the Old Testament by itself, that something greater still had to come. Some, someone, something greater still needed to come. Jeremiah, in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, speaks about this new covenant, okay? Now, why, why does this matter? I mean, one of the reasons this matters is for most Christians, the Old Testament is not a book that they read. It's not a part of the Bible they read. And if they do read it, they tend to read it wrong. They tend to think that the Old Testament is not about God's grace and it's not about the gospel. I hear all the time people say, well, you know, the gospel came with Jesus. And that's not true. It's absolutely not true. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, that the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. And you look back in Genesis and you say, well, where's the gospel preached? I don't see anything about Jesus there. Jesus says he's there everywhere. He tells the Jews at one point, if you read Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and you don't see me, you haven't listened to Moses. You haven't really read them. But there you look in Abraham's uh, story, and God promises to Abraham that I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will make a great nation out of you and your descendants. That is the gospel. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3.8 that the scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. It's there. So I hope that if you hang around RUF, the, re- the Old Testament will be opened up to you in a way like the Bible never has. Because most Christians just read the Gospels. Maybe they read the Psalms sometimes. And if they're kind of pragmatic and they just want to know what to do, maybe they read the Proverbs every now and then. And they read the letters of Paul. And most people, you could look at their Bible, you could sort of hold it sideways, and you can see you know, from the edge of the Bible where they tend to to read and where has never been read. And for most people, two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament, is hardly ever read because we don't know how to see it pointing to Jesus and we don't see how it tells us about God's grace. That's a huge shame, and it's one of the reasons we're doing the book of Hebrews. And one of the heart themes of the Old Testament is this idea of the covenant and the new covenant. So with that as some background, let's dig into this. What is the newness of the new covenant? Now here you need to understand, both covenants, old covenant, new covenant, deal with redemption. Both of the covenants, see here's the thing, God created Adam and Eve in a covenant with him, but then sin entered the world, that covenant was broken. But God sets up a covenant of grace and says, I will not give up on the goal of my covenant, which is to have a people for me and to be their God. And so he sets out to redeem people. And so both covenants deal with redemption and how to be reconciled to God. Uh, Both covenants also deal with the law. If you think that the Old Testament law is irrelevant for Christians, you don't understand the new covenant. 
The new covenant says that the law, and it's the, it's the law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, where God says, love me and love your neighbor. And if you want some more explanation of what that looks like, here's a tenfold summary, the tenfold, Ten Commandments. If you want uh, a threefold summary, what does it mean to walk with your God but to walk humbly, to love mercy, and to do justice, right? That's a threefold summary. Those are all different ways of summarizing the same basic point. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. And even to love your neighbor is a way of loving the Lord your God. Okay, all of that stuff, the, the Old Testament told the, the Israelites to write that stuff down, to write it on their forehead, to write it on little papers and hang it around their neck. But the new covenant says, I'm going to take that law, God says, and I'm going to write it on your hearts. So the law is not different. The idea about loving God and loving your neighbor doesn't change. But instead of it being something that you write down, the promise of the new covenant is it's going to be written on your hearts. So that's, it's the same law, but there's something new. What, what else is new about the new covenant? Um, basically, the newness is this, this transformation of the heart. In, in other words, in the Old Testament, there is the, the law, and the, God's people are to know the law, to live by the law, but there's no power. There's no power. Have you, ever, have you ever had somebody tell you to do something and it just has no power to change your heart? And you may even go along with it, but your heart is very far from the person. That's, that's kind of the Old Testament situation. God tells them what to do, and it's good stuff that he tells them to do. It's what they're made for. And yet, telling people what to do in and of itself does not have power to touch your heart. And what God has always wanted is people who would love him with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their strength. Jesus says this very clearly to us. And yet, what does God have to do? It's not enough to just tell us what to do. The heart of the Bible is that Jesus is more than just a good teacher. He doesn't just come down and reiterate everything that God has said. He does something. He lives what God had said. Then he dies for all those people that didn't do what God said. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father and he sends his Spirit. And the work of the Spirit is to take that law, all those things that God said you were made for, and to make it something that you long to do. It's one thing to just know I'm supposed to live this way. It's another thing to have in your heart to long to be generous, to long to be somebody who is faithful to long to be somebody who wants to be honorable and merciful. And the promise, the promise of the new covenant is God says, I'm committed to that. Everything you're supposed to be, I'm going to make you to be. It, it, it actually transforms the way you read the Old Testament to see this. Because all the stuff that the Bible says you're supposed to do, love your neighbor as yourself. You ever taken that really seriously? I, don't, I think if you don't understand the new covenant promise, like all that stuff will make you despair because you just read all this stuff about what I'm supposed to be. But if you understand the new covenant promise, all that stuff that, about what you're supposed to do is actually a way of God saying, this is who you're going to be. This isn't just what you're supposed to do. This is a description of who I'm going to make you to be. And in the glorious thing that God like promises, think about the Ten Commandments. If you lived in a society or in a community where people didn't lust after one another, 
where, where people didn't regard each other um, first and foremost by what they look like. Wouldn't that be a glorious community to be part of? Guys, girls, who doesn't want to live in a community where what you look like is not the first thing people look at and the first thing people use to decide whether you're a valuable person or not? What would it be like to live in a community where people don't murder one another and don't long to kill one another, either with their words or destroying their reputations or even physically doing violence? Don't you long for that? And what God is saying is, I'm committed to making a people like that. And the way I'm going to do it is by putting my spirit in you and moving you to obey my commands. And so when we look at these things, and instead of just reading the Old Testament and saying, well, man, I guess I'm, I've really screwed up and I guess I'm beyond hope. No, say, look, God has promised that what the law says I'm supposed to do, he is working on me to make me that kind of person. And he is working on his church which is to be a colony of the coming kingdom, to demonstrate to the watching world that God changes us. I know we're not there yet, but don't be a cynic and just give up hope. God has promised in the promise of the new covenant, he is going to make us into, the, into what he calls us to be, what he commands us to be, right? There's a great um, little poem that this guy, John Barrage, um, used to say, and I, I love this. I think this is a great way of getting at what I'm trying to get at here. It says, run and work, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A sweeter sound the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. So the basic point here, what's new about the new covenant and what's so important and so glorious for us, if you're trying to follow Jesus, trying to figure out what the Christian life is about, and maybe you're really intrigued by it and you're really attracted to it, and you want to live like a Christian, if the new covenant promise doesn't come to you, you can't live like a Christian. You actually, trying to live like a Christian will probably be a pretty good person, and the world will be better for it if you really try hard to live like Jesus lived. But the promise of the new covenant is that God will make you into that kind of person. So don't give up. I know that you're not that person now. But I also know that you're a bunch of perfectionists who don't want to keep working at something and failing all the time. You need to know the new covenant promise that God is not thwarted by your failure because he's promised to send his spirit to change you, to write his law in your hearts, and to move you to obey him. So when you read the law telling you what to do, see it as a promise of what God is committed to do. And pray for that. Say, I long to be this kind of person. Do this work in me, even now. Do it in our community, even now. The second thing that the new covenant gives that's so glorious is it doesn't just cover our sin, but it deals with our sin, right? Here's, here's the problem with the old covenant and the animal sacrifices. And a lot of people think, like, people in the Old Testament were saved by animal sacrifices, but in the New Testament, they're saved by Jesus sacrificed. That is not true. That's not true. And the Bible never says that. What the Bible says is that the Old Testament animal sacrifices were pointing to God's provision. But people that were saved in the Old Testament were saved by looking to God to provide for them. And they looked at these animal sacrifices as a picture of what God was committed to do. How do we know that? The first way we know that, and the book of Hebrews says this in the several chapters all around this, is that it was repetitious. 
The fact that you needed to do those annual sacrifices over and over and over again. Every year they had a day of atonement where the high priest would sprinkle blood on the the Holy of Holies in the altar, right? The fact that it had to be done every year and that the other sacrifices needed to be done every day showed that it wasn't really working. Built into the sacrificial system was this message in big, bold letters. Hey, I know you're supposed to do this. It's pointing you to God who will deal with your sin, but it isn't working. These animal sacrifices aren't doing the job. How do you know? Because you need to do it again. You need to do it again and again and again. Not only that, but the animal sacrifices only cover your sin, your failures to love. It covers that, but it never gives you righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness means being beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything he requires from the heart. See, it's not just enough that you never screw up. God says you need to live in a particular way, loving me and loving your neighbor. And the sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices, might get rid of your guilt, but it can never give you beauty. Right? And to think about it, like bloody, you know, covering can cover you and obscure your sin, in a sense, but it can never make you beautiful. It can never make you beautiful. But God is committed to making you beautiful. And in Christ, you get credit for Christians. You get credit for the life that Jesus lived, and it was a beautiful life. It was a beautiful life. And you need to live that beautiful life. You can't do it. But God in the gospel gives you credit for the beautiful life Jesus lived, right? So it was repetitious. The animals weren't good enough. The sacrificial system couldn't make us righteous. And it was pointing us to something that was to come. But now we've got this new covenant. And Hebrews 8 says that everything that was being looked forward to, now the day has come. The day has come. The new covenant promise of Jeremiah has now come in Jesus and how does, uh, how does Hebrews 8 talk about this? Look at verse 6. It says this, The ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs, meaning the Old Testament priests, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And he says this, it's founded on better promises. So first, think about this. The new covenant is founded on better promises. Well, how can promises be better? Like if God is making a promise, aren't all his promises great? The answer is Yes. But what's different about the promises of the new covenant? They're not just promises that are waiting for fulfillment. They're promises that have been made and kept. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as many promises as God has made, they are all fulfilled by Jesus. I like the old King James language. It says that all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. So it's founded on better promises because... The new covenant has already happened. Jesus has already done everything required for us to be God's people. Not only that, it says here that our sins will be remembered no more. Look at verse 12, quoting Jeremiah. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the language of sin being dealt with, not just covered over. There's a promise, and this must have been astonishing to God's people to hear Jeremiah make this promise because they'd never heard this promise that their sins would be no more. 
But this is what God says. And, and actually in the prophet Zechariah, he says that I will wipe away the sin of this, day, of this land in a single day. It's an astonishing promise that God is going to do something that will wipe away the sin of this land in a single day. What they've been doing thousands of years of animal sacrifices to that point, God says, I'm going to do all that in a single day. And that's what happens in Jesus. And then there's this interesting promise about no teachers. No teachers. And you're like, okay, that's weird. What does that mean? Here's what you need to understand. In the Old Testament, the teachers were also the priests. And there's a sense in which all of God's people are going to be made priests. Right? This is what we call the priesthood of all believers. That every one of us can intercede and pray for one another. Every one of us can teach and share the gospel. Paul says in Colossians that we're to um, you know, sing spiritual songs in one another, to one another to get the gospel into people's hearts. We're all called to do that. Um, and then there's this promise that he will be our God and we will be our people. But notice here, there's something else that's, that's interesting. What did Adam and Eve had before the fall, or what do we have after Christ that Adam and Eve didn't have before the fall? They had this perfect relationship with God. They loved God. They knew that he loved him. But there's something that believers after Jesus have that they could not have. And it's this. We know that God is full of grace. See, there was no grace before the fall. There was no grace before sin entered the world. And so grace was always in God's character but there was no manifestation of it until sin came into the world. And you may think sin is the worst thing imaginable, but there is actually this interesting doctrine. It has a funny name. They call it the doctrine of the fortunate fall. And you might think, well, that's kind of a weird thing. But it's this idea that we actually gain something that we would never have had if Adam and Eve had never fallen. And it's an understanding of the mercy and the grace of God. And I don't know about you, but when I think about God, it's one thing to think about his holiness, his perfection, the fact that he's beyond time, he's eternal, he's omnipotent, all-powerful, all those things, amazing. But sort of the cherry on top, if you will, is the fact that God is gracious and merciful. Adam, uh, uh, Isaac Watts, great hymn writer, put it this way in his hymn. Uh, I know I quoted here. Yeah. Jesus shall reign where the sun. This is an old hymn, but he says it well. He says, where God, where he displays his healing power, death and the curse are known no more. In him, that means in Christ, the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. That's what the idea of the new covenant is teaching that we now have a security that we could have never had because now we have Jesus who lived and died in our place. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we now have the righteousness of God. If Adam, who represented mankind, had never sinned, then mankind would have perfect human righteousness. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God made him, Jesus, to be sin. He said he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And let me just tell you, it makes all the difference in the world how you relate to God. If you think that all that you get in the gospel is forgiveness for your sins and a fresh start, then I know you're going to be miserable trying to live the Christian life. Because you're going to wonder, after I've screwed up again, like how long is God going to keep forgiving me over and over and over and over again? Christianity is not about turning over a new leaf and getting a fresh start. It's about getting the righteousness of God credited to your account because God is gracious and merciful. And it also means knowing that and letting that grace and mercy dissolve your hard heart and melt your hard heart so that you long to live for him. That's the heart of what Christianity is about. Now, I'll give you one practical application and one good quote, and then we'll close. If you look at the bottom, there's this quote by Charles Spurgeon that is fascinating. Because people, here's the thing. If your sin is not really dealt with, if you really don't believe that what Jesus did can fully deal with the sin problem, and I know, I don't care if you've been grown up in church or if you're just beginning to check out Christianity, people have all kinds of ways that they resist the fullness of the gospel. In other words, even people who think they're Christians and maybe are Christians um, tend to still think that they need to do a little extra credit work just to make sure that they get that A when they meet God one day, you know? And you guys love to do that, I know. Like, oh yeah, I've got an A, but I better do some extra credit because, you know, I might bomb the final and I just want to make, you know, we're always like trying to cover our bases in every sort of way, right? And here, here's the thing. At some level, like trying to do extra credit work to get God in your debt is not only foolish, it's offensive to God. God would love for you to live for him, but he doesn't want you to live to manipulate him. He's not into that. (laughs) I'm just telling you. And so here's the thing. One of the interesting ways that some people who feel like they, they feel bad, they feel like they haven't measured up to what God wants, it's interesting. Some people try to sort of bluff their way through it. And say, well, you know, God, I'm better than that guy. Better than my roommate. I, I don't do that, the stuff that she does. Right? So they try and bluff God and, and sort of get him to look at somebody else and not look at them. Because they feel guilty and they feel bad in their hearts. Right? So that's one strategy. But there's another strategy that's interesting. Which is to basically beat yourself up all the time. To hopefully, you know, influence God in such a way that he won't have the heart to judge you. <laughs> this is what a lot of Christians do. A lot of people that grew up in religious households kind of beat themselves up thinking that if they can sort of pro, you know, proactively beat themselves up, maybe God won't have the heart to really punish them. It's another way of trying to deal with their sin and their guilty consciences by themselves. And I love this quote by Spurgeon, and this to me shows why the gospel really matters. Listen to what he says. Spurgeon's this great old Baptist preacher from the 19th century. He says, do not scourge yourself. With his stripes we are healed. That's Isaiah 53. I beg you, do not think that by some kind of spiritual mortification, that means trying to beat your body into submission, or terror or horror into which you force yourself, you shall be healed. Christians are always wanting to do this, like make themselves feel really, really guilty so that maybe they'll live better. You ever done that? You ever tried to feel that? You know people like that? Yeah. He says, your healing is in his stripes, not in your own. In his griefs, not in your griefs. I implore you, do not make your repentance into a rival of the stripes of Jesus, for so it would become an antichrist. When your eye is full of tears, look through them to Christ, whom you may see, whether your eye be wet or dry. 
In the Christ on the cross, there are five wounds, but you have not to add either another one of your own to them. In him and in him alone, all is all your healing. In him who from head to foot became a mass of suffering, that you, diseased from head to foot, might from the crown of your head to the sole of your foot be made perfectly whole. That's worth pondering. That's worth praying through. And then finally, this quote by the great old hymn writer Horatius Bonar. If you want to know, if you want to walk out of here and say, what is the heart of Christianity? Here it is. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. And Jesus is saying here in Hebrews 8, is that there is a life that was lived and a death that was died that is fully satisfactory for everything you need. Right? And even that Old Testament, Old Covenant sacrifice, that, notice what it said there? That God told Moses, look at this pattern you see and then build the tabernacle just like it. In other words, the tabernacle wasn't the first tabernacle. And the temple was not the first temple. There was already a spiritual tabernacle in heaven. The tabernacle here was just a copy of it. But Jesus went into the true holy of holies. He went before the very throne of God and stood before him, covered in your sin, and God obliterated him. He took the fullness of God's anger upon sin, and he took it upon himself. And he opened a way for us to be able to come boldly before the throne and look God in the face, as it were, and know that he is our father and we are his children and he loves us, and he'll never change his opinion about that because Jesus' life and death is what God thinks about when he thinks about you. Therefore, you can have real peace. Your sins are covered. You're beautiful in his sight. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity, and I pray that that's your life motto. And if it's not, why not? Let's pray together.